Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine. Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. On SAFM. Eight minutes after one. Good afternoon. This is Life Happens. My name is Pimelo Mutine. Coming up on the show, we're going to be paying tribute to ambassadors in Zimandela. But... What I want to start off with is, I think, a very important conversation. It's going to be a big one, and you are very most certainly welcome to be a part of it. It's about how this country is going to move from policy that is, by and large, well-meant and is, is good, but is not seeing the results on the bottom. What am I talking about? I'm talking about inequality. I'm talking about just general development. Of course, things have changed. COVID-19 has presented many, many different challenges to all of us, not just South Africa, but many other countries. But we, we had our own challenges, unique challenges before COVID-19. So my guest this afternoon, Amina Ibrahim, who's a research associate at UniWIDA, United Nations University of World Institute for Development Economic Research. And I'm also joined by Faika Hartley as well, researcher at the University of Cape Town. Mamiki Liolo, who's a senior official at the South African Reserve uh, Bank, which is uh, I beg your pardon, revenue services at SARS. Okay, and they are part of a, a group called SA Tide, South African Toward Inclusive Economic Development. Okay, it's a program that essentially brings together different researchers from different institutions. And they are trying to inform policymaking via the kind of data that they collect. And different people will bring different elements to the conversation. And what we're trying to grapple with here is how policy can eventually affect development. Policy can eventually bring together some imperatives that the country needs to be to, to sort out, like uh, inequality and so on. So, ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So let, let me start with the obvious question being that so much has changed since this program started. And, and I wonder whether that has completely shifted your efforts to now dealing directly with COVID efforts um, and research directed at COVID and the lockdown and economic development in this period. Let me start with you, uh, Mamiki, because you are at, um, at SARS and I, and I imagine that that kind of immediately talks to your work. Yes, thank you, uh, Pamela, and good afternoon to listeners. Um, the work that we've been primarily focused on under the SA-type program, uh, which uh, stands for Southern Africa, the SA part of it, um, tied and for towards inclusive economic development. The work that was initially crafted around the SA-type program was looking at evidence-based data-driven research and policy formulation to help shape inclusive growth and economic transformation in the Southern African region. So fast forward to where we are at the moment. Obviously, the events of COVID have taken over. We've had to look at some of the data that we sit with and some of the research that has been worked on and some of the models that we've developed to say, how do we start understanding the impact of COVID given where we are at the moment? So the work that has been done so far has sort of given us a platform to be able to respond to some of the more immediate uh, challenges that we pick up in our environment, and in this particular instance, COVID-19. So if you look at our website, satide.wider.unu.edu, you'll see that there's been a couple of papers that have already been prepared in the month of April, May, to try, to try and sort of give an estimation of how much we're going to be impacted by covid both from an economic perspective and also 
from certain segments uh, in our economy that would be would, would feel the biggest in terms of the, the pandemic. Hmm. I mean, let me come to you. I mean, generally, I, I stand to be corrected. South African economic policies in general were well intended. The problem we faced was that they didn't somehow bring out the, the outcomes that we liked. Am I correct in saying that? Thank you, uh, Pimelo. So they are well intended and they send, I, I mean, I understand that Economic policy takes a long time to develop, and part of our program is working with policymakers. It's a collaborative interface between research and policymakers, so it's also about taking what we know from the research that we've done in the past couple of years about the poverty, about the gender inequality, about the wage inequality, and now making it available to policymakers. And this is directly through our website, through kind of the published working papers and the research, but also sometimes more informally through conversations and being part of policy discussions. Mm. And and I'm going to also bring in, in Faika here because you do a lot of work around climate mitigation analysis and and how all of that will help us with even the kind of policies that we're trying to develop around energy generation. Everybody will understand it's important because now we're being load shed. So now suddenly it hits us directly. Um, and, and I want to ask you whether we've been almost on the right path with regards to our policy making around energy and and why we we are so slow in making those policy changes that need to be made seeing that we are where we are with with the current policy um the, the current energy policies that we have uh, good afternoon and good afternoon to your listeners um so yes i am involved in the energy and climate scheme um in the southern africa towards inclusive um, economic development project um, and as you say, um, we are looking at climate issues, and the reason why is that the program and the project is both uh, short-term as well as long-term factors that are affecting the South African economy. Um, so climate change particularly is something that we know is going to happen and that's something that we know that we're going to have to prepare for. Um, and so that forms part of the medium to longer-term um, types of policy that South Africa needs to develop for or uh, develop policies for. Um, on the energy front, um, we've been looking a lot at the changes in um, the energy uh, environment in terms of technologies. Um, so as you and most of your listeners may know, um, the uh, generation costs from producing power from renewable technologies have decreased um, dramatically over the past five or so years. Um, and it's now at a point where it's cost competitive with producing power from coal. Um, given that, as well as South Africa's abundant um, natural resource that we have for renewable energy sources, so, so both solar and wind, um, as well as the well-matching profile um, of our energy demand um, in the country, um, renewable energy really has a large play, a role to play in producing um, power for, for the country. Um, on the policy front, um, as Amina has indicated, um, policy is something that moves slowly. Um, and one of the things that the Southern Africa Supporting to Development uh, Program wants to do is that it wants to, through engagement and through working with different um, stakeholders in the, in the economy, sort of get everybody um, to be um, united in their approach to how certain um, 
how we want to approach certain issues or deal with certain issues in the country. So I think around energy it's really, and electricity, it's really about getting everybody sort of um, uh, to the same place in terms of what is the move um, going forward. Um, yeah, so, and, and so that's what one of the things that the Southern Africa Towards Inclusive Economic Development Program allows for, allows for the um, sort of the production of the evidence base that allows for the development of policies um, that we know will be able to work and will assist in the development of South Africa. Let's talk a little bit about those challenges, because in as much as we may have one idea about what is great for us, and I think um, some of it is very ideological, uh, and I, I like the fact that you bring data into it, there are some challenges. So, for instance, if one has to think about renewable energy, and you think about the sun, and you think about the wind, and yet you have, on the one hand, climate change that is is making it quite difficult for prediction of weather, and, and understanding the fact that if somebody's going to invest in, in this renewable energy, we don't really know if this is going to be a viable business, for instance, if your climate is going to be dramatically changed in the next 50 years. And you need to invest in maybe that kind of infrastructure. Yes. Um, so in terms of climate change, what we know so from the global circulation model predictions um, so these are predictions of temperature and precipitation change um, globally and then sort of broken down to Southern Africa and, and South Africa. So what we know from these models is that South Africa is likely to experience an increase in temperature. Um, and with things being a bit more uncertain in terms of the precipitation impact. Um, so on that front, renewable energy um both because we have these resources, um, definitely um, is sort of a, a key part of the energy mix for South Africa going forward. I'm going to open the lines on 0891-104-207 as well as your WhatsApp notes on 0614-104-107. Essentially, just to get your take as a listener at home, how you feel some policies that we have around the country have impacted on what you feel could have been a more positive or negative impact on you economically. So are you feeling less poorer? Are you feeling poorer? Do you feel that there's been more inequality in your life and how that that has played out in your life? I'd like to take your calls on 0891-104-207. Call Pimelo Mutine now. Hi, Pimelo. It's Piri here in Alex. Look, it's well and good to have policies, but man, do we have many of them. So it's policy after policy after policy with actually no real tangible changes in people's lives. I mean, when are we actually going to implement these policies and really see to it that we create much needed employment for the people and the marginalized in our Good afternoon, Pamela. I hope you're doing well, as I do too. My name is Abhimakaya from Port Elizabeth. With regards to the policies, they're very poor. The government does not know what to do. Even currently now, he just banned uh, alcohol just right after I lost, like, you know, before I lost, like, my... Because I lost my brother through this alcohol thing, and then now he just banned it, like... <laughs> like, it was something that he 
didn't think of doing so. Like, what's going on? I don't really don't know what's going on in South Africa. And yeah, it's just head and tails game going on. Thank you. All right, so my guests are uh, a group of ladies who are a part of a program called the Southern Africa Towards Inclusive Economic Development. And really, this is an initiative that is hoping to bring data together that is going to help inform better policymaking. Amina Abraham, let me just start with you. Uh, I'll start with the first uh, uh, voice note that came through talking about policy and policies that don't assist in creating jobs. From the research that you've done, um, what can you share with that particular listener? Uh, Thanks, Primero, and thanks to the listeners sent in the query. These policies... um, are large and the problems are bigger uh, and sometimes it's hard to see the policies move the needle on unemployment uh, both quickly and in a large way. So one of the things that I've been studying in the past couple of years while I've been based at the National Treasury is the Youth Wage Subsidy Program. And one of the interesting ways to study is it actually to use the tax data that we get from Mamiki's team at the South African Revenue Service, because this is the way in which the employment tax incentive is actually collected. Now, from the research that I've done, it does show that at our small and medium-sized firms, jobs are being created. Uh, But one of the problems I think we're encountering is in terms of the scale of the problem. When you have large, large millions of youth who are unemployed, sometimes 100,000 jobs uh, is not enough to move the needle. Um, and I think something further is still required. Or f- more policies are required from the from the government. Mm. Mamiki, from, from the data that you've put together, um, Amina was just referring to some of the data that you have furnished her with. What, what, do you, what are the patterns that you're seeing with regards to the tax data that you're collecting? Okay, so maybe just a bit of context to how we... Uh, got involved. Um, one of the things that the program, the SATI program, t- tries to achieve is to say that this a there should be some kind of a unique collaboration between p- people who do research and people who develop policy. Mm. And second one is that there needs to be some kind of an evidence-based kind of policy making. And therefore, the question that the, the program tries to address is to say, how do we support policymakers um, to foster environment of inclusive growth and economic transformation? And how we sort of come in into the picture is that um, internationally you see that there's a, a change in terms of trend where we start making use of tax administration data as the basis upon which we evaluate and make decisions about our fiscal policy. And therefore, in our space, we sort of make it easier for our researchers, our academic researchers and our policy developers to access information that helps them to A, craft the right kind of questions and B, develop the right of policy, the right policies, and C, track the impact of those policies over time using evidence and using data. So coming back to your question around what are we picking up in terms of broad trends, uh, um, in terms of environment, um, what we can say from the tax collection perspective, you can see that over time there has been a growth in terms of the number of people that have been absorbed in terms of employment, but I've obviously now moved into the COVID environment, that number has steadily uh, come down. And I think in the next few months, you're going to see an exit of people in the employment sector. But um, I think unlike in the 20, 
2008-2009 global financial crisis where we lost about a million jobs, which some of which were eventually absorbed. In this particular instance, I think that the cut or the loss of uh, employment opportunities has come has happened quite rapidly and is likely to be felt very deeply. So we'll have to see in terms of the next coming months as to how many people eventually find themselves gaining and going back into full-time employment. I mean, let me come back to you with regards to what Mamika's response is. There is the, the, it's quite obvious that a lot of people have lost jobs and that's going to be affecting um, economic growth and so on. But let's talk about the 1% and what you're picking up from the data of the very wealthy people who have got money, who may not necessarily be that, that affected by, by, you know, things like COVID and, and their intent on being part of the solution. What are you getting in terms of those studies there, their, their, their behavior when it comes to paying tax, evasion of tax, and so on? So, I mean, the tax data is a little bit slow in the process, um, so we'll only get a, get a glimpse maybe next year of what, what these people are actually doing um, now in this, in this COVID period. But we do have a little bit of research, um, as Mamiki said, I mean, and this is available online about how these uh, top income earners behave when there are tax changes and what they, you know, what their kind of um, behavior is uh, when things uh, are become difficult for them. Um, and so maybe the, some kind of tax avoidance or, um, or working with tax practitioners to kind of move things around. Um, yeah. Faika, from from the perspective of the work that you do and what you were saying earlier on around um, just the the intention for everybody to see a united vision for 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 a country, for instance, which is what informs policy. When we talk about energy in this country, it's a very difficult conversation because there are jobs on the one hand and and uh, lobby groups that are invested in the kind of model that we see now. Then there are people who then want a different kind of model to be going forward. In terms of finding that middle ground, how far are we from the studies that you guys have made? Sure. Um, so just before I get into that, I just wanted to sort of um, add on to what Amna was saying about um, the research um, and sort of the output from the research. So um, as you said, COVID is something that's been very new and it's been worked into the SS Hyde program. Um, and we've done started doing work on COVID research. Um, and I think a lot of this is really going to come out in the next couple of months as the, the, the program continues to roll out. So we'll be able to say a bit more about sort of um, what's happening in terms of the various statuses. Um, then in terms of sort of energy and, and moving energy forward, um, so I agree with you that what we're seeing from the research work um, that we've been doing is that um, shifting to renewable energy in South Africa um, because of the lower generation costs, we're no longer really finding um, what, we, what we've seen before, whether there was this trade-off between um, going for clean power or clean energy versus economic development. So because those costs have come down, um, that trade-off um, is no longer there. What we actually see now when we've done um, the various energy and economic modeling tools that we have is we see that when you sort of choose the least cost path for um, power generation, there's also an economic benefit. So you actually are, you have higher economic growth 
and you also are creating jobs. Um, that being said, though, um, we all know and we all understand that shifting to renewable energy means shifting away from coal. Um, and what needs a, a more of an understanding is sort of what are what is this um, coal community or the community that's dependent on the coal sector? What do they look like? What are the options for these workers in terms of being retrained, being reskilled, and being shifted into other sectors? And then also thinking about the regions that will be affected by by the decrease in coal production, which are Mpumalanga and Limpopo, and trying to think of new development strategies for these. Um, so these are kind of research areas that are sort of at, at the start of sort of trying to understand these various dynamics and how we take this forward, um, forward in, yeah, in South Africa. Nice. Um, and I think that what we're going to see over the next year or two years is a lot of work being done in, uh, in sort of thinking about this just transition um, in the country. And we've already seen this um, coming through um, from the National Planning Commission, where they're starting also to talk about these just transitions and having these dialogues um, around how to move South Africa forward um, on a sort of greener growth path. All right. I'm going to ask to just pause there with uh, with all of you and take a quick break and go to the headlines. And I will take your call. I do see you, Mr. Pillay. I'll take your call in a short while. But it's now 1.30. Let's go to Utila Saku for the latest in headlines. Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. My guests are Amina Ibrahim, who is a research associate at uh, UniWired, and uh, Faika Hartley, who is a researcher at the University of Cape Town, Mamiki Liolo, who is a senior official at the South African Revenue Services. They're all part of a group that is working on an SA Tide, Southern Africa, towards inclusive economic development program. And really, this is just trying to inform government with data that they need to put policies together that become a bit more effective. I will take your call. As I said, 0891 uh, Mr. Pillay, you're calling from the Eastern Cape. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Nina. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Go ahead. Uh, I think, you know, there is a serious complaint about policies which are not implemented. I think we all share the sentiments. But the fact of the matter is that most of the time, other policies are being created because we need subsequent policies on certain policies become not effective. Why do I say this thing is that, you know, I'm a member of the visual legislature. In the oversight, we see that because we are strictly saying that women should have 50% each, and at least eight of the departments now we can say that the senior management got 50% each. We are saying that, okay, 2% of people with a disability should be accommodated in employment. And so I'm trying to say it is not about the policy. Many a times we hear this from the people, those who are supposed to implement, they are not implementing there is a policy which is saying that we should provide uh, parking for the disabled person, a person with a disability. But you will find that a person supposed to be a senior manager occupying that space. I'm just giving a simple example. So I'm saying that it is not about the policies. And, you know, now that has been a fashion in uh, South Africa. We say we do have policies we are not implementing. Who is not implementing? Most of the time you'll find that the person who is rightly responsible is not implementing, but he complains about it. Thanks Thank for, you. Thanks very much, Mr. Pillay. Mamiki, let me give you a chance to respond to that. Is is there the disconnect there where there are policies, yes, but then, you know, there's just a lot of flouting of policies that are great and maybe that's part of the problem? So one of the things 
thanks to Madam Mr. Pili for the question. I think one of the things that we find very interesting is to look at um, data over time and not necessarily respond to very immediate situations, but look at how things have turned out over time. So we have been part of a, in, in, in another space, we've been part of a, a, a group that has done an insight from 100 years of income tax act. And uh, in 2014, we sort of took a panel data view of how um, taxes have changed and participation of women in the tax in taxation mm. has changed over time. And if you look at our numbers from 1991, the ratio of female taxpayers has moved from about 20% uh, in 1991. By 2015, the participation of female taxpayers had moved to, to about 44%. To what percent? If you look at our tax, 44%. So okay. if, if you look at our tax statistics for 2019 with respect to 2018 tax year, mm-hmm. you see that females um, uh, that are taxed, that number has now moved to about 46%. Mm-hmm. So yes, you may say maybe immediately when you sort of look at immediately the environment, not everything reflects reflect this, but over time, uh, through direct interventions and through we've seen the participation of women changing and gradually improving over time. However, you also have to pause and say, at the moment, what does, does the kids look like? And, you know, are they misdemeanors to the data or are they misdemeanors to the distribution pattern? So if you look at, for example, our tax assessed between females and, and males, and you look at taxable income according to various taxable brackets, you see that below 350,000 taxable income, the ratio they fall with about 46% females and the balance to males. But if you look above uh, 350,000 uh, taxable, 350,000 taxable income, that ratio sort of gets skewed more towards males. And if you look at about 5 million, above 5 million taxable income, that ratio between females and males is about 15% to 87%. So the ratio gets skewed ac- across different um, income schemes. But by and large, over time, there has been an improvement in terms of uh, female participation in the economy and also, like we see from the tax perspective, when we look at the number of tax tax paying uh, individuals that are female, that has definitely um, shown an increase. Is there room for, obviously, you know, interrogating this further and getting that number to probably reflect more of our actual demographics? Of course there is, that perhaps we should actually be looking at 51% females 49% 49% males or some ratio like that that reflects the actual demographic of Thanks very much, Mamiki. Uh, Faika, tell me from, from where you stand and, and the work that you said you've been doing and you've, you've highlighted the people that are working behind the scenes on this, do we have enough buy-in to accelerate the policy towards a direction that is favorable for the country? Um, Zimala, I'd like to add that um, what one of the things that the Southern African Small Inclusive Economic Development Program is trying to do is exactly highlight this need for uh, empowering women. Um, and it's doing that um, through both its local uh, collaboration, where at least 30% of the authors who are involved in, these, in the research has to be women. Um, and what's exactly that is that 62% of the papers that have been written thus far have been authored or at least co-authored by women. And it's also doing this through capacity development where it's offering um, PhD scholarships as well as uh, young uh, scholars. Um, so these are masters and honors 
uh, university students the opportunity to do research with um, experts both locally and internationally, as well as work with various government officials. Um, so the role of women and sort of empowering women is definitely something um, that the program is trying to highlight and promote um, sort of over, over the project time frame. Yeah. And I mean, that, I mean, to you, just highlight exactly why it's so important to have that inclusivity, because I think for many people, um, it's lip service, but it's important that we highlight that inclusivity. It is, in fact, important. If I think of my own career developing um, as a woman in economics, um, somewhat a field that's dominated by men, uh, it's been important to have uh, good role models. And this is something that the, the program's been providing um, and so these are role models such as Maniki, such as um, other government officials and academics who are senior and who can show you a pathway um, both in terms of policy and both in terms of research. Um, and it's also now our duty as um, as people who've grown in this program to now mentor some of the youngers. And this is what, um, you know, Faika has been talking about this Young Scholars Program. We, we've, we have young master students who have come to us with their research saying, actually, we want to further this. Um, can we get some more guidance? Um, and then it's building those relationships with the young people, exposing them to policymakers, um, bringing them up to Pretoria and showing them what it could be like um, in the government. Uh, and that's been a, a big part of the, the success story of the program. Mm. Um, so many of our capacity building initiatives, our training, our technical training, our working with data um, that's been dominated by women. Mm. Mamiki, just highlight what exclusion of those groups is, is what, what it results in. So the consequences of us not including women. Yeah, it's a bit difficult to argue a theoretical other side of the, the equation, but maybe let me just start off with um, what including women has meant for this program, mm-hmm. and then just to edify to what Saita um, and Amina had mentioned. So, in terms of the, the obviously, this is a program that runs for three years with certain intended outcomes, and like I mentioned earlier, I want to say, if we look at Southern Africa, there are opportunities for this particular part of the African uh, region to achieve inclusive growth and economic transformation. And the question that we constantly ask ourselves, how do we help the policymakers to, to make sure that this does in fact happen? And we sort of looked at six areas where we thought perhaps if we do have deliberate interventions in these six areas, we could move that the needle a bit and move the dial on the needle a bit. The first one is around how do we develop inter- entrepreneurs in order to create jobs and for growth? So that's the first work stream that we sort of set up. The second work stream that we set up was that how do we look at public revenue mobilization for inclusive development? Public revenue mobilization essentially is how do we bring in taxes to include for inclusive development? The third one was how do we bring in macroeconomic modeling for policy formulation? Fourth one, how do we turn the tide on inequality? And inequality, uh, including obviously gender inequality. The fifth one that uh, Faisa has spoken about is about Climate change and, and energy transition levels of change to the economy. And the, the last one, the sixth part of the, the work that we do is how do we bring in our growth for Southern Africa's prosperity. And in all of these six work streams, we sort of had balance of women being co-leaders or 
co-leaders in these uh, work streams. So the first one around enterprise development, we've got Professor Carol Newman, uh, who is uh, in Ireland, who is also a, a work stream leader for, for work stream number one. Work stream number two are tax and public revenue mobilization. Um, I'm a co with um, a colleague, Juka Patila, uh, in, uh, in the Netherlands. Um, um, and Amina is also involved with uh, our work stream number two. Uh, work stream number three, there is Ebi Uso Mujise, who is involved from the National Charity side. Work stream number four, we've got Kathleen McLeod, Involved from National Treasury, Taika under uh, work stream five on climate, and um, uh, work stream number six, we've got Annalyn Cheki from the BPI. The reason why I'm sort of mentioning and highlighting the women that are, mm. uh, are involved with this particular program is mm. that we do then have a voice, we do then have a say in the kinds of research topics that we, we see as being relevant to show that we, we, move, uh, we move the needle in terms of the participation of women either in research participation of, of women in some of these particular work streams or participation in terms of the studies that they want to undertake. And maybe just also to, to, to just talk about, so some of the things that we wanted to achieve in the program is to have a couple of papers published. Uh, at the moment, we're looking at about 150 papers to be published. By June, we had already had 118 papers published. We had set ourselves a goal to say 75% of these papers must be offered or co-authored by a local author. So obviously you've got international uh, academia, inter- international researchers and international policymakers that sort of we collaborate amongst ourselves, but we have to make sure that there is local participation. If we look at um, the June statistics, 70% of our papers have either been solely lo- uh, authored by a, a, a local or co-authored by a local person. We had also said, said to ourselves that 30% of the research must be co-authored or authored by women, and or when we do capacity building sessions, 30% of participants must be women. And I think, I mean, you know, for, for me, it's to be able to report and say 52% of our, our papers have actually been authored or co-authored by women. So there has been quite a tremendous uh, progress that we've made in terms of making sure that there, there is a voice given to women in particular research. And, and my question is, well, why is that important, Mamiki? I think because if you look at, like I'm saying, if you look at our statistics and if you look at our participation of women in the economy, we still are, we are far from where we would have ideally wanted to get to. Although we've made some progress, there's still some way to go. And for us to sort of move at that, to, to push ourselves to achieving these goals, we do need to have specific and very um, targeted interventions to, to give a voice to those that did not have a voice in the past, to give um, space for those that did not get opportunities to have a space to contribute. And to also bring diversity to skills and thoughts and to, to the value add that there, there should be people who have a voice that is different from those that have been in the mainstream for a long time. Mm. I mean, from the data that you're analyzing, I don't know if it informs why is it that there is just so little participation of, of, of women in the economy? What's keeping them out? So is there anything uh, scientific that we can distill from the data that's coming through that informs why we've, we've locked women out of the economy? So the, the data that's coming through from Amiki most more recently has actually included some information on gender, and we're only now starting to tap into this 
this information. So we actually have one piece of research that's starting to analyze this, and they kind of look at uh, how women are progressing in the labor market. Um, and it is, I mean, it puts put some interesting um put some interesting things together in terms of their job styles, how long they stay in the labor market, um, then, you know, why perhaps or putting out some reasons um, or suggestions for why women then disappear from the labor market, and then what happens to their earnings. So um, I, I, I would uh, encourage your listeners actually to go out to our website and look at um, some of the gender research we have uh, available. Hmm. Faika, your, your response to the inclusion of women in your sector? Yeah, so um, I think the importance of women, including women, are also to ensure that we have different perspectives, different viewpoints, and different experiences all coming together to sort of tackle these problems and thinking through these issues. And what this really enables is robust dialogue and also optimal policy planning that you know is going to work for everyone and not only a certain share of the population. Um, instead of, in terms of my experience and my sort of journey in economics, um, I feel that what, what really helps is if you have supportive management. Mm. Um, and as Amna said before, also, if you have role models where you see, can see people are doing this while at the same time having families, etc. So really having that sort of um, um, conducive environment where uh, you can tell your boss, for example, and he understands that at 5 o'clock you need to leave for the day because you've got kids at home that you need to attend to. But that does not mean that you're not going to be doing um, the tasks and the work that you need to mm. do. Um, so it's really building that environment that is supportive to women um, and understanding all of these things that women, the other roles that women have to play as well in their lives. Um, and that's one of the things um, that I feel, for example, um, places like the National Treasury, um, the Reserve Bank, they really support women and give them the opportunities in order to sort of um, increase their skill sets and really promote themselves in the field that they're working in. Mm. I know it's early days, but Mamiki, I mean, you in the beginning of the year, there was some really nice news about the number of women that are now paying tax. We've now got COVID. Are we starting to see a, a major dip that um, that shows the effect that this COVID has had on women from, from a revenue point of view? Um, like you're saying, it's a very early day for mm. us to be able to say, particularly because, like I'm saying, we normally use data, so mm. evidence for us to be able to give some kind of a, yeah. a assertion to a particular point. At this stage, in terms of assessing and looking at the number of taxpayers that are female that are dropping out of the system, that's going to be a bit difficult to be able to respond to. Mm. But yes, I think if you just look at broad general um um, surveys that are being done, unstructured surveys that you're picking up from all the market participants, whether it's in pu- private sector or public sector, the, num- the, the kind of feedback that they're giving in terms of the week-on-week surveys they're giving in terms of the impact of COVID does point to the fact that um, uh, females are a lot more vulnerable to mm. COVID-19. Mm. Uh, if you look at some of the studies that have been done by uh, international bodies, such as the IMF, I think in the, the le- latest um, World Economic Outlook, uh, they did have a, a section where they talked about the vulnerability of women when we're now entering the, the, depth, the depth of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, mm. yes, we'll, we'll, we will most, most certainly keep an eye out in terms of our statistics to get a sense of, you know, how much have, have uh, females been affected 
by the COVID-19. But I think it just in terms of, if you just look at the profile, also mm. the kind of jobs that are occupied by females in South Africa, that these uh, your, your more uh, personal service um, industry is mm. dominated by females. Therefore, your, your hair salons, et cetera, et cetera, those kind of personal services, if they've been shut down for as long as they've been shut down, that it will most likely, in terms of the distribution of a population, will more affect your female taxpayers than they would your male taxpayers. So the, the, the vulnerability of our females in terms of the um, of participation in the economy and also from a sex perspective, that becomes quite um, heightened when these pandemics that is um, manifesting the way they do. Uh, and, uh, and I mean, let me just uh, pick up on that um, with you to say, you know, what, what we've been told is that nothing will ever go back to what is what we had regarded as normal. Um, yes, we don't have the data right now, but we can anticipate that it's going to be quite um, desperate what we're going to see with how this COVID-19 has affected women economically. Your suggestion on, on how then policy should be framed geared towards empowering that woman again. Yeah, thanks, Amina. Um, so, yes, go ahead, Amina. Thanks, Amina. So, uh, I mean, it's gonna, it's definitely gonna be a challenge for policymakers um, in terms of targeting uh, to women in the in the in the job market. Um, I think they, there's gonna have to be a strengthening of some of our job creation. Um, initiatives um, and the employment tax incentives. Um, I mean, I think that's something that we can again look at and what the gender distribution is going to be there and how um, that's actually going to, whether it's going to be saving jobs, um, both for men and women. Um, but it's definitely something that needs to be considered seriously. And I, mean, I think what we bring today, not necessarily immediately, because like you said, the data is not available, but um, the little bit that we do have, we have engaged um, on gender with uh, policymakers. So this is um, this is building some of that capacity within uh, government around our research, right? so informing them about what we have found so far about, um, about our, our female workers. Mm. Faika, you know, um, I think many of us have 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 felt the effects of of an energy mix that is not quite uh, optimal for for what we need for job creation and the development of the economy, especially in this country. I get the sense that we're not we're not moving quickly enough. Unfortunately, uh, we have COVID, which is also then hampering efforts. But what 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 do you think needs to be done to accelerate the speed of policy making in moving this energy mix that we we're talking about? Some of it being um, renewable as quickly as possible so that it can benefit the economy. So I, I agree with you in that um, on the energy front at the moment we need to be moving we need to be moving faster. Um, if we look at sort of outside of COVID, um, our lack of electricity supply is really one of the largest um, factors that are negatively affecting um, economic growth in, in the country. Um, and I think what really needs to be done is that policy decisions need to be made in terms of the move forward for um, energy and electricity planning. Um, we we have to sort of make these decisions and go forward with, with the technologies that are chosen. Um, and, and we need to... Um, we need to understand that we've got a massive opportunity right now. Um, we, South Africa is um, in a, the unique position where um, it's, 
existing power capacity is aging and we do need to do, do the investment. Um, so because of that situation, we have to make any, we have to make some type of, type of investment and we should be choosing the least cost um, optimal path, which in this case includes a considerable amount of renewable energy. Um, and uh, because these costs have come down, we don't have the sort of uh, negative impact on economic development um, that we used to have in the past. And we also don't have to worry about sort of um, investment that had been made and that would be lost because those plants or the existing plants are reaching the retirement age. Um, so I think that we need to move. Uh, decisions need to be made um, to ensure that we can meet the, um, the demand for energy in our country and that it's no longer a drag on growth. So, I mean, that, that is a perfectly plausible argument, but then you have people who haven't bought into the fact that we can still transfer skills. Has, has that conversation kind of moved forward? Sorry, could you please repeat the question? I was saying your, your argument makes perfect sense, but do we have enough people who've bought into the idea that we can still transfer, transfer skills from maybe a coal industry to more a renewable type industry? Because that's where some of the, 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 the loggerheads has been. So I think that on um, sort of on the renewable, if, if we're talking about on the power production side, power then production, I don't yeah. think that the, the skill constraint is as, is as massive um, as, as sort of expected. I mean, uh, you have um, training facilities within South Africa that um, are capable of training um, uh, uh, electricians and um, engineers to work that have been working on coal power plants to. Uh, work um, on renewable plants like um, solar PV farms or wind farms. Um, I think that we, we, what we South Africa really needs a plan is thinking about um, how do we provide the skill set to um, uh, coal miners who would be losing their jobs and how do we help them transition into other sectors of the economy. Because the point about coal as well is that um, globally there's a shift away from dirty fossil fuels um, and South Africa exports a large share of its coal. So if we are going to find ourselves, or we are likely going to be finding ourselves in a position where mm-hmm. that demand for South African coal is going to decrease over time anyways. Um, and there have been some interesting projections that have been done about this um, by, by various institutions, um, both internationally and in South Africa. Um, so we really need to have a transition plan for our coal mining workers and also for uh, the Mufumulanga and the Papua regions that are going to be affected by um, sort of the decreasing demand for coal, whether that is coming from South Africa shifting towards renewables, mm-hmm. whether that's coming from um, a decrease in external demand from abroad. And, and, and I mean, that's quite plausible because if, if there will be less demand, then, you know, it will just die a natural death. Um, those communities and those, those mining um, people in, in, in that sector, is there enough buy-in? I mean, I can see the logic. Are, are people receptive to what we say? So what we found is sort of in the discussions that we've had when we've uh, been presenting the work that we've been doing is that um, there is an understanding, uh, both at the community level as well as the unions, that this is something that is naturally um, going to take place. And then what we really need to be getting towards is thinking about how do we empower these people to sort of transition away from coal. I mean, the other thing that we also need to think about, Milo, is that if you're living in Pumalanga and you think about the quality of air that mm. you're breathing in every day, mm. I mean, um, 
if I was living there and I had another economic opportunity, mm. so another way to ensure my love, my livelihood and my wealthy, surely I would want that other opportunity where I have cleaner air and also at the same time, um, because of the cleaner air, I have less health issues. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, Mamiki, thank you so much. I mean, it's, it's, this is a wonderful program. Mamiki Liolo, who is official, a senior official at the South African Reserve Services, uh, Revenue Services. I've also got Faika Hartley, who's a researcher at the University of Cape Town. Uh, Amina Ibrahim, who's a research associate at UNIWIDA, United Nations University World Institute for Development Economics Research. They form part of a group that is uh, leading a research research really, research work that informs policies for this country. And it's called Southern Africa Towards Inclusive Economic Development. We'll send you the link to their website and you can get a glimpse of some of the work that and papers that they've published that are, I suppose, going towards assisting us in, in policymaking. And your views, obviously, at that uh, will be very welcome. I'm also interested in hearing how you feel about some of the information that comes through. What's key here is collection of real hardcore data in informing policy, not just policy in, in, in a vacuum policy that is informed by data that for me i think is very important thank you very much to all you ladies for for your participation two o'clock let's go to utzi lesaku for the latest in sabc news